Chapter 11, Part 1 of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dick Bourgeois Doyle. Gilbert Keith Chesterton by Maisie Ward. Chapter 11, Part 1. Married Life in London. The suburbs are commonly referred to as prosaic. That is a matter of taste. Personally, I find them intoxicating. Introduction to Literary London The wedding day drew near, and the presents were pouring in. I feel like the young man in the gospel, said Gilbert to Annie Furman. Sorrowful, because I have great possessions. Conrad Noel married Gilbert and Francis at Kensington Parish Church on June 28, 1901. As Gilbert knelt down, the price ticket on the sole of one of his new shoes became plainly visible. Annie caught Mrs. Chesterton's eye, and they began to laugh helplessly. Annie thinks, too, that for once in their lives, Gilbert and Cecil did not argue at the reception. Lucian Oldershaw drove ahead to the station with the heavy luggage, put it on the train, and waited feverishly. That train went off with the luggage. Then another. And at last the happy couple appeared. Gilbert had felt it necessary to stop on the way in order to drink a glass of milk in one shop and to buy a revolver with cartridges in another. The milk he drank because in childhood his mother used to give him a glass in that shop. The revolver was for the defense of his bride against possible dangers. They followed the luggage by a slow train. This love of weapons, his revolver, his favorite sword stick, remained with him all his life. It suggested the adventures that he always bestowed on the heroes of his stories and would himself have loved to experience. He noted in Twelve Types Scott's love of armor and of weapons for their own sakes. The texture, the power, the beauty of a sword hilt or a jeweled dagger. As a child would play with these things, Gilbert played with them. But they also stood in his mind for freedom, adventure, personal responsibility, and much else that the modern world had lost. The honeymoon was spent on the Northwick Broads. On the way, they stopped at Ipswich. And it was like meeting a friend in a fairy tale to find himself under the sign of the white horse on the first day of my honeymoon. Annie Furman was staying in Warwick Gardens for the wedding and afterwards. Gilbert's first letter from the Northwick Broads began, I have a wife, a piece of string, a pencil, and a knife. What more can any man want on a honeymoon? Asked on his return what wallpapers he would prefer in the house they had chosen, he asked for brown paper so he could draw pictures everywhere. He had by no means abandoned this old habit, and Annie remembers an illness during which he asked for a long enough pencil to draw on the ceiling. Their quaint little house in Edward Square, Kensington, lent to them by Mr. Boer, an old friend of Francis, was close to Warwick Gardens. I remember the house well, wrote E.C. Bentley later, with its garden of old trees and its general air of Georgian peace. I remember, too, the splendid flaming frescoes, done in vivid crayons of knights and heroes and divinities with which G.K.C. embellished the outside wall of the back beneath a sheltering portico. 
I have often wondered whether the landlord charged for them as dilapidations at the end of the tenancy. They were only in Edwards Square for a few months, and then moved to Overstrand Mansions, Battersea, where the rest of their London life was spent. It was here I came to know them a few years later. As soon as they could afford it, they threw drawing room and dining room together to make one big room. At one end hung an engagement board with what Father O'Connor has described as a loud inscription, lest we forget. Beside the engagements was pinned a poem by Allaire Balak. Francis and Gilbert have a little flat, at 80 pounds a year and cheap at that, where Francis, who is Gilbert's only wife, leads an unhappy and complaining life, while Gilbert, who is Francis' only man, puts up with it as gamely as he can. The Bellocks chose life in the country much earlier than the Chestertons, and an undated letter to Battersea threatens due reprisals in an exclusion from their country home if the Chestertons are not prepared to receive them in town at a late hour. Kingsland, Shipley, Horsham. It will annoy you a good deal to hear that I am in town tomorrow, Wednesday evening, and I shall appear at your apartment at 10.45 or 10.30 at the earliest p.m. You are only just returned. You are hardly settled down. It is an intolerable nuisance. You heartily wish I had not mentioned it. Well, you see that arrow pointing to telegrams, Coulomb, Sussex? If you wire there before one, you can put me off. But if you do, I shall melt your keys. Both the exterior one, which forms the body, or form of the matter, and the interior one, which is the mystical content thereof. Also, if you put me off, I shall not have you down here ever to see the oak room, the tapestry room, the green room, etc. Yours, H.B. Early in his Battersea life, Gilbert received a note from Max Beerbaum, the great humorist, introducing himself and suggesting a luncheon together. I am quite different from my writings, and so, I dare say, are you, from yours, so that we should not necessarily fail to hit it off. I, in the flesh, am modest, full of common sense, very genial, and rather dull. What you are remains to be seen, or not to be seen, by me according to your decision. Gilbert's decision was for the meeting, and an instant liking grew into a warm friendship. As in J.D.C. days, Gilbert had written verse about his friends, so now did he try to sum up an impression, perhaps after some special talk. And Max's queer, crystalline sense, lit like a sea beneath a sea, shines through a shameless impudence, as shameless uh, humility. Orbelic somewhat rudely roared, but all above him, when he spoke, the immortal battle trumpets broke, and Europe was a single sword. Unpublished fragment. Somewhere about this time must have occurred the incident mentioned by George Bernard Shaw in a note which appeared in the Mark Twain Quarterly, spring 1937. I cannot remember when I first met Chesterton. I was so much struck by a review of Scott's Ivanhoe, which he wrote for the Daily News in the course of his earliest notable job as a feuilletonist for the paper, that I wrote to him asking who he was and where he came from, as he was evidently a new star in literature. He was either too shy or too lazy to answer. The next thing I remember is his lunching with us on quite intimate terms, accompanied by Belloc. The actual first meeting, forgotten by Shaw, is remembered by Gilbert's brother-in-law, Lucian Oldershaw. 
he and gilbert had gone together to paris where they visited rodin then making a bust of bernard shaw mr oldershaw introduced gilbert to g b s who rodin's secretary told them had been endeavouring to explain at some length the nature of the salvation army leading up one imagines to an account of major barbara at the end of the explanation rodin's secretary remarked to a rather apologetic shaw the master says you have not much french but you impose yourself shaw talked gilbert down mr oldershaw complained that the famous man should talk more than the beginner is hardly surprising but all through gilbert's life the complaint recurs on the lips of his admirers just as a similar complaint is made by lockhart about sir walter scott chesterton like scott abounded in cordial admiration of other men and women and had a simple enjoyment in meeting them and chesterton was one of the few great conversationalists perhaps the only one who would really rather listen than talk in 1901 appeared his first book of collected essays the defendant the essays in it had already appeared in the speaker like all his later work it had the mixed reception of enthusiasts who saw what he meant and puzzled reviewers who took refuge in that blessed word paradox paradox ought to be used said one of these like onions to season the salad mr chesterton's salad is all onions paradox has been defined as truth standing on her head to attract attention mr chesterton makes truth cut her throat to attract attention without denying that his love of a joke led him into indefensible puns and such like fooleries though monsignor ronald knox tells me he is prepared to defend all of g k s puns i think nearly all his paradoxes were either the startling expression of an entirely neglected truth or the startling re-emphasis of the neglected side of a truth once he said it is a paradox but it is god and not i who should have the credit of it he proved his case a few years later in the chapter of orthodoxy called the paradoxes of christianity what it amounted to was roughly this paradox must be the nature of things because of god's infinity and the limitations of the world and of man's mind to us limited beings god can express his idea only in fragments we can bring together apparent contradictions in those fragments whereby a greater truth is suggested if we do this in a sudden or incongruous manner we startle the unprepared and arouse the cry of paradox but if we will not do it we shall miss a great deal of truth chesterton also saw many proverbs and old sayings as containing a truth which the people who constantly repeated them had forgotten the world was asleep and must be awakened the world had gone placidly mad and must be violently restored to sanity that the methods he used annoyed some is undeniable but he did force people to think even if they raged at him as the unaccustomed muscles came into play i believe he said in a speech at this date in getting into hot water i think it keeps you clean and he believed intensely in keeping out of a narrow stream of merely literary life to those who exalted the poet above the journalist he gave this answer the poet writing his name upon a score of little pages in the silence of his study may or may not have an intellectual right to despise the journalist but i greatly doubt whether he would not morally be better if he saw the great lights burning on through darkness into dawn and heard the roar of the printing wheels weaving the destinies of another day here at least is a school of labor 
and of some rough humility, the largest work ever published anonymously since the great Christian cathedrals. A Word for the Mere Journalist, Darlington North Star, February 3rd, 1902. He plunged then into the life of Fleet Street, and held it his proudest boast to be a journalist, but he had his own way of being a journalist. On the whole, I think I owe my success, as the millionaires say, to having listened respectfully and rather bashfully to the very best advice given by all the best journalists who had achieved the best sort of success in journalism, and then going away and doing the exact opposite. For what they all told me was that the secret of success in journalism was to study the particular journal and write what was suitable to it and partly by accident and ignorance, and partly through the real rabid certainties of youth, I cannot remember that I ever wrote any article that was at all suitable to any paper. I wrote on a nonconformist organ, like the old Daily News, and told them all about French cafes and Catholic cathedrals. And they loved it, because they had never heard of them before. I wrote on a robust labor organ, like the old clarion, and defended medieval theology and all the things their readers had never heard of, and their readers did not mind me a bit. Autobiography, pages 185 to 186. Mr. Titterden, who worked also on the Daily News and came at this time to know G.K. at the Pharaoh's Club, says that at first he was rather shy of the other men on the staff, but after a dinner at which he was asked to speak, he came to know and like them, and to be at home in Fleet Street. He liked to work amid human contact, and would write his articles in a public house, or in the club, or even in the street, resting the paper against a wall. Frank Swinnerton records a description given him by Charles Masterman of how Chesterton used to sit writing his articles in a Fleet Street cafe, sampling and mixing a terrible conjunction of drinks, while many waiters hovered about him, partly in awe and partly in case he should leave the restaurant without paying for what he had had. One day, the head waiter approached Masterman. Your friend, he whispered admiringly. He very clever man. He sit and laugh, and then he write, and then he laugh at what he write. Georgian scene, page 94. He loved Fleet Street and did a good deal of drinking there, but not only there. When, in the autobiography, he writes of wine and song, it is not Fleet Street and its taverns that come back to his mind, but the moonstruck banquets given by Mr. Morris Baring, the garden in Westminster where he fenced with real swords against one more intoxicated than himself, songs shouted in Oberon Herbert's rooms near Buckingham Palace. After marriage, Francis seems to have given up the struggle so ardently pursued during their engagement to make him tidy. By a stroke of genius, she decided instead to make him picturesque. The conventional frock coat worn so unconventionally, the silk hat crowning a mat of hair disappeared, and a wide-brimmed slouch hat and flowing cloak more appropriately garbed him. This was especially good as he got fatter. He was a tall man, six foot two. As a boy, he had been thin, but now he was rapidly putting on weight. Neither he nor Cecil played games. The tennis did not last. But they used to go for long walks, sometimes going off together for a couple of days at a time. Gilbert still liked to do this with Francis, but the sedentary daily life and the consumption of a good deal of beer did not help towards a graceful figure. By 1903, G.K. was called a fat humorist, 
and he was fast getting ready to be Dr. Johnson in various pageants. By 1906, he was then 32. He had become famous enough to be one of the celebrities painted or photographed for exhibitions, and Bernard Shaw described a photo of him by Coburn. Chesterton is our Quinbus Flestrin, the young man mountain, a large, abounding, gigantically cherubic person, who is not only large in body and mind, beyond all decency, but seems to be growing larger as you look at him, swelling, whizbily, as Tony Weller puts it. Mr. Coburn has represented him as flowing off the plate in the very act of being photographed and blurring his own outlines in the process. Also, he has caught the Chestertonian resemblance to Balzac and unconsciously handled his subject as Rodin handled Balzac. You may call the placing of the head on the plate wrong, the focusing wrong, the exposure wrong if you like, but Chesterton is right, and a right impression of Chesterton is what Mr. Coburn was driving at. The change in his appearance G.K. celebrated in a stanza of his Ballad of the Grotesque. I was light as a penny to spend. I was thin as an arrow to cleave. I could stand on a fishing rod's end, with composure, though on the qui vive. But from time, all the flying to thieve, the suns and the moons of the year, a different shape I receive. The shape is decidedly queer. London, said a recently arrived American, is the most marvelously fulfilling experience. I went to see Fleet Street this morning and met G.K. Chesterton face to face. Wrapped in a cloak and standing in the doorway of a pie shop, he was composing a poem, reciting it aloud as he wrote. The most striking thing about the incident was that no one took the slightest notice. I doubt if any writer, except Dickens, has so quickly become an institution as Chesterton, nor, of course, would his picturesqueness in Fleet Street or his swift success as a journalist have accomplished this but for the vast output of books on every conceivable subject. But before I come to the books written during those years at Battersea, a word must be said of another element besides his journalistic contacts that was linking G.K. with a wider world than the solely literary. We have seen that even when his religion was at its lowest point, in the difficult art school days, he never lost it entirely. I hung on to religion by one thin thread of thanks. In the years of the notebook, he advanced very far in his pondering on and his acceptance of the great religious truths. But this did not as yet mean attachment to the church. Then he met Frances. She actually practiced a religion. This was something utterly unaccountable both to me and to the whole fussy culture in which she lived. Now that they were married, Francis, as a convinced Anglo-Catholic, was bringing more clergy and other Anglican friends into Gilbert's circle. Moreover, he was lecturing all over England, and this brought him into contact with all sorts of strange religious beliefs. Amid all this scattered thinking, I began to piece together fragments of the old religious scheme, mainly by the various gaps that denoted its disappearance. And the more I saw of real human nature, the more I came to suspect that it was really rather bad for all these people that it had disappeared. Autobiography, page 177. In 1903-1904, he had a tremendous battle, the detail of which will be treated in the next chapter, in the Clarion with Robert Blanchford. In it, he adumbrated many of the ideas that were later developed in orthodoxy. 
Of the arguments used by Blanchford and his atheist friends, G.K. wrote that the effect on his own mind was, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. In a diary kept by Francis spasmodically during the years 1904 and 1905, she notes that Gilbert has been asked to preach as the first of a series of lay preachers in a city church. She writes, March 16th, one of the proudest days of my life, Gilbert preached at St. Paul's, Covent Garden, for the CSU, the Christian Social Union, Vox Populi, Vox Dei, a cram church. He was very eloquent and restrained. Sermons will be published afterwards. Published they were, under the title, Preachers from the Pew. March 30th, the second sermon, The Citizen, the Gentleman, and the Savage. Even better than last week, Where there is no vision, the people perisheth. Well, it is remembered that the Browning, the Watts, Twelve Types, and the Napoleon of Notting Hill had all been published and received with acclaim. It is touching that Francis should speak thus of the proudest day of her life. That Gilbert should himself have vision and show it to others remained her strongest aspiration. Not thus felt all his admirers. The Blatchford controversy on matters religious became more than many of them could bear. A plaintive correspondent, says the Daily News, who seems to have had enough of the eternal verities and the eternal other things, sends us the following lines written on reading Mr. J. Key Chesterton's 47th reply to a secularist opponent. What ails our wondrous G.K.C.? Who late on youth's glad wings flew fairy-like and gossip-free of translunary things? And thus, in dull, didactic mood, he quits the realms of dream, and like some pulpit preacher rude, drones on one dreary theme. Stern Blatchford, thou hast dashed the glee of our omniscient babe. Thy name alone now murmurs he, or that of dark McCabe. All vain his cloudy fancy swell, his paradox all vain, obsessed by that malignant spell of Blatchford on the brain. H.S.S. Daily News, 12 January, 1904. Mr. Noel has a livelier memory of Gilbert's religious and social activities. On one occasion, he went to the Battersea flat for a meeting at which he was to speak and Gilbert take the chair to establish a local branch of the Christian Social Union. The two men got into talk over their wine in the dining room, then still a separate room, and Francis came in much agitated. Gilbert, you must dress. The people will be arriving any moment. Yes, yes, I'll go. The argument was resumed and went on with animation. Francis came back. Gilbert, the drawing room is half full and people are still arriving. At last, in despair, she brought Gilbert's dress clothes into the dining room and made him change there, still arguing. Next, he had to be urged into the drawing room. Established at a small table, he began to draw comic bishops quite oblivious to the fact that he was to take the chair of the now-assembled meeting. Finally, Francis managed to attract his attention. He leaped up, overthrowing the small table and scattering the comic bishops. Surely this story, said a friend whom I told it, proves what some people said about Chesterton's affectation. He must have been posing. I do not think so, and those who knew Gilbert best believed him incapable of posing. He was perfectly capable of willfulness and of sulking like a schoolboy. It amused him to argue with Mr. Noel. It did not amuse him at all to take the chair at the meeting. So, as he was not allowed to go on arguing, he drew comic bishops. 
There was, too, more than a touch of his willfulness in the second shock he administered to respectable Battersea later in the evening. An earnest young lady asked the company for counsel as to the best way of arranging her solitary maid's evening out. "'I'm so afraid,' ended the appeal, "'of her going to the Red Lion. "'Best place she could go,' said Gilbert. "'And occasionally he would add example to precept. "'For society in Fleet Street were not the only places,' for human intercourse. At present, commented a journalist, he is cultivating the local politics of Battersea. In secluded alehouses, he drinks with the frequenters and learns their opinions on municipal milk and on Mr. John Burns. Good friends and very gay companions, Gilbert calls the Christian Social Union group, of whom, beside Conrad Noel, were Charles Masterman, Bishop Gore, Percy Dermer, and above all, Canon Scott Holland. Known as Scotty and adored by many generations of young men, he was a man with a natural surge of laughter within him, so that his broad mouth seemed always to be shut down on it in a grimace of restraint. Like Gilbert, he suffered from the effect of urging his most serious views with apparent flippancy and fantastic illustrations. In the course of a speech to a respectable Nottingham audience, he remarked, I dare say several of you here have never been in prison. Autobiography page 169. A ghastly stare, says Gilbert, describing the speech, was fixed on all the faces of the audience, and I have ever since seen it in my own dreams, for it has constituted a considerable part of my own problem. Gilbert's verses, summarizing the meeting as it must have sounded to a worthy Nottingham tradesman, are quoted in the autobiography and completed in Father Brown on Chesterton. I have put them together here, for they show how merrily these men were working to change the world. The Christian Social Union here was very much annoyed. It seems there is some duty which we never should avoid, and so they sang a lot of hymns to help the unemployed. Upon a platform at the end, the speakers were displayed, and Bishop Hoskins stood in front and hit a bell and said, that Mr. Carter was to pray. Mr. Carter prayed. Then Bishop Gore of Birmingham, he stood upon one leg, and said he would be happier if beggars didn't beg, and that if they pinched his palace, it would take him down a peg. He said that unemployment was a horror and a blight. He said that charities produced servility and spite, and stood upon the other leg and said it wasn't right. And then a man named Chesterton got up and played with water. He seemed to say that principles were nice and led to slaughter, and how we always compromised and how we didn't arter. Then Cannon Holland fired ahead like fifty cannons firing. We tried to find out what he meant with infinite inquiring, but the way he made the windows jump, we couldn't help admiring. I understood him to remark, it seemed a little odd, that half a dozen of his friends had never been in quad. He said he was a socialist himself, and so was God. He said the human soul should be ashamed of every sham. He said a man should constantly ejaculate, I am. When he had done, I went outside and got into a tram. Partly perhaps to console himself for the loss of his son's daily company, chiefly, I imagine, out of sheer pride and joy in his success, Edward Chesterton started after the publication of The Wild Night, pasting all Gilbert's press cuttings into volumes. Later I learned 
that had long been Gilbert's weekly penance to read these cuttings on Sunday afternoon at his father's house. Traces of his passage are visible wherever a space admits of a caricature, and occasionally where it does not. The caricature is superimposed on the text. His growing fame may be seen by the growing size of these volumes and the increased space given to each of his books. Twelve Types in 1902 had a good press for a young man's work and was taken seriously in some important papers, but its success was as nothing compared with that of the Browning a year later. The bulk of Twelve Types, as of the defendant, had appeared in periodicals, but never in his life did Gilbert prepare a volume of his essays for the press without improving, changing, and unifying. It was never merely a collection, always a book. Still, the Browning was another matter. It was a compliment for a comparatively new author to be given the commission for the English Men of Letters series. Stephen Gwynne describes the experience of the publishers. On my advice, the Macmillans had asked him to do Browning in the English Men of Letters when he was still not quite arrived. Old Mr. Craig, the senior partner, sent for me and I found him in white fury with Chesterton's proofs corrected in pencil or rather not corrected. There were still 13 errors uncorrected on one page, mostly in quotations from Browning. A selection from a Scotch ballad had been quoted from memory, and three of the four lines were wrong. I wrote to Chesterton saying that the firm thought the book was going to disgrace them. His reply was, like the trumpeting of a crushed elephant, but the book was a huge success. Quoted in Chesterton by Cyril Clemens, page 14. In fact, it created a sensation and established GK in the front rank. Not all the reviewers liked it, and one angry writer in the Athenaeum pointed out that, not content with innumerable inaccuracies about Browning's descent and the events of his life, GK had even invented a line in Mr. Sludge, the medium. But every important paper had not only a review, but a long review, and the vast majority were enthusiastic. Chesterton claimed Browning as a poet not for experts, but for every man. His treatment of Browning's love affair, of the poet's obscurity, and of the ring and the book all receive the same praise, of an originality which casts a true and revealing light for his readers. As with all his literary criticism, the most famous critics admitted that he had opened fresh windows on the subject for themselves. This attack on his inaccuracy and admiration for his insight constantly recurs with Chesterton's literary work. Readers noted that in the Ballad of the White Horse, he made Alfred's left-wing face Guthrum's left wing. He was amused when it was pointed out, but never bothered to alter it. His memory was prodigious. All his friends testified to his knowing by heart pages of his favorite authors, and these were not few. Ten years after his time with Fisher Unwin, Francis told Father O'Connor that he remembered all the plots and most of the characters of the thousands of novels he had read for the firm. But he trusted his memory too much, and never verified. Indeed, when it was a question merely of verbal quotation, he said it was pedantic to bother. And when latterly Dorothy Collins looked up his references, he barely tolerated it. Again, while he constantly declared that he was no scholar, he said things illuminating even to scholars. 
Thus, much later, when Chesterton's St. Thomas Aquinas appeared, the Master General of the Dominican Order, Père Gillet, lectured on and from it to large meetings of Dominicans. Mr. Eccles told me that, talking of Virgil, G.K. said things immensely illuminating for experts on Latin poetry. In a very different field, Mr. Oldershaw noted after their trip to Paris that though he could set Gilbert Wright on many a detail, yet his generalizations were marvelous. He had, said Mr. Eccles, an intuitive mind. He had, too, read more than was realized, partly because his carelessness and contempt for scholarship misled. Where the pedant would have referred and quoted and cross-referred, he went dashing on, throwing out ideas from his abundance and caring little if among his wealth were a few faults of fact or interpretation. Abundance was a word much used of his work just now, and in the field of literary criticism he was placed high and had an enthusiastic following. We may assume that the Browning had something to do with Sir Oliver Lodge's asking him in the next year, 1904, to become a candidate for the Chair of Literature at Birmingham University, but he had no desire to be a professor. Francis, in her diary, notes some of their widening contacts and engagements. The mixture of shrewdness and simplicity in her comments will be familiar to those who knew her intimately. Meeting her for the first time, I think the main impression was that of the single eye. She abounded in Gilbert's sense. As my mother commented after an early meeting and ministered to his genius, yet she never lost an individual, markedly feminine point of view, which helped him greatly, as anyone can see who will read all he wrote on marriage. He shows an insight almost uncanny in the section called The Mistake About Women and What's Wrong with the World. Some people, he said in a speech in 1905, when married gain each other, some only lose themselves. The Chestertons gained each other, and by the sort of paradox he loved, Frances did so by throwing the stream of her own life unreservedly into the greater river of her husband's. She writes in her diary in 1904, Gilbert and I met all sorts of queer, well-known, attractive, unattractive people, and I expect this book will be mostly about them. February 17th, we went together to Mr. and Mrs. Sidney Colvin's home. It was rather jolly, but too many clever people there to be really nice. The clever people were Mr. Joseph Conrad, Mr. Henry James, Mr. Lawrence Binion, Mr. Morris Hewlett, and a great many more. Mr. and Mrs. Colvin looked so happy. February 3rd, Gilbert went as Mr. Lane's guest to a dinner of the odd volumes at the Imperial Restaurant. The other guest was Baden-Powell. He and Gilbert made speeches. March 8th, Gilbert was to speak on education at the CSU meeting at Sion College, but a debate on the Chinese labor in South Africa was introduced instead and went excitingly. There is to be a big meeting of the CSU to protest, though I suppose it's all no good now. When the meeting was over, we adjourned to a tea shop and had immense fun. Gilbert Percy Dermer and Conrad Noel walked together down Fleet Street, and never was there a funnier sight. Gilbert's costume consisted of a frock coat, huge felt hat, and walking stick brandished in the face of the passers-by, to their exceeding great danger. Conrad was dressed in an old lounge suit of sober grey, with a clerical hat jauntily stuck on the back of his head, which led someone to remark, are you here in the capacity of a private gentleman, poor curate, or low-class actor? 
Mr. Dermer is clad in wonderful clerical garments, of which he alone possesses the pattern, which made him look like a Chaucer Canterbury pilgrim or a figure out of uh, Noah's Ark. They swaggered down the roadway talking energetically. At tea, we talked of many things. The future of the Commonwealth, chiefly. March 22nd, meeting of Christian Theosophical Society, at which Gilbert lectured on how Theosophy appears to a Christian. He was very good. Herbert Burroughs vigorously attacked him in debate afterwards. Napoleon of Notting Hill was published. April 27th, Bellex and the Knowles came here to dinner. Hilaire, in great form, recited his own poetry with great enthusiasm the whole evening. May 9th, the literary fun dinner. About the greatest treat I ever had in my life. J.M. Barry presided. He was so splendid and so complimentary. Mrs. J.M. Barry is very pretty, but the most beautiful woman there was Mrs. Anthony Hope. Copper-colored hair, masses, with a wreath of gardenias, green eyes, and a long neck, very beautiful figure. The speakers were Barry, Lord Tennyson, Communes Carr, A.E.W. Mason, Mrs. Craigie, who acquitted herself wonderfully, and Mrs. Flora Annie Steele. After the formal dinner, it was a reception at which everyone was very friendly. It is wonderful the way in which they all accept Gilbert, and one well-known man told me he was the brightest man present. Anyhow, there was a feeling of brotherhood and fellowship in the wielding of the lovely and loathly pen. J.M. Barry's speech. May 12th, went to see Max Beerbohm's caricature of Gilbert at the Carfax Gallery. G.K.C., humanist, kissing the world. It's more like Thackeray. Very funny, though. June 9th, a political at home at Mrs. Sidney Webb's. Saw Winston Churchill and Lloyd George. Politics and nothing but politics is dull work, though, and in Trigger's life must be a pretty poor affair. Mrs. Sidney Webb looked very handsome and moved among her guests as one to the manner born. I like Mrs. Leonard Courtenay, who is always kind to me. Charlie Masterman and I had a long talk on the iniquities of the Daily News, and goodness knows they are serious enough. June 22nd, an at-home at Mrs. Blank's proved rather a dull affair, save for a nice little conversation with Watts Dunton. His walrusy appearance, which makes the bottom of his face look fierce, is counteracted by the kindness of his little eyes. He told us the inner story of Whistler's Peacock Room, which scarcely redounds to Whistler's credit. The Duchess of Sutherland was there, and many notabilities. Between ourselves, Mr. Blank is a good-hearted snob. His wife, nice, intelligent, but affected. I suppose unconsciously. I don't really like the precious people. They worry me. June 30th, Graham Robertson's at home was exceedingly select. I felt rather too uncultivated to talk much. Mr. Lane tucked his arm into mine and requested to know the news, which means, tell me all your husband is doing or going to do, how much is he getting, who will publish for him, has he sold his American rights, etc., Cobden's three daughters looked out of place, so solid and sincere are they. It was all too grand. No man ought to have so much wealth. July 5th. Gilbert went today to see Swinburne. I think he found it rather hard to reconcile the idea with the man, but he was interested, though I could not gather much about the visit. He was amused at the compliments which Watts Dunton and Swinburne pay to each other unceasingly. December 8th. George Alexander has an idea that he wants Gilbert to write a play for him and sent for him to come and see him. 
He was apparently taken with the notion of a play on the Crusades, and although there is at present no love incident in Gilbert's mind, Alexander introduced and acted the supposed love scene with great spirit. It may come off some day, perhaps. December 31st, H. Belloc's been very ill, but is better, thank God. 1905, February 1st. Gilbert, a guest at the 80 Club dinner. Rhoda and I went to after-dinner speeches. G.W.E. Russell, chair, Augustine Burrell, guest, and Sir Henry Fowler. It amused me hugely. Russell so imprudent and reckless, Burrell so prudent and incapable of giving himself away, and Sir Henry Fowler so commonplace and trite. He looked so wicked. I thought of Mr. Haldane's story of Fowler's fur coat and his single remark on examining it. Skunk. February 11th. Rather an interesting lunch at Mrs. J.R. Green's. Jack Yeats and Mrs. Thursby were there. The atmosphere is too political, and I imagine Mrs. Green to be a bit of a wire-puller, though I believe a nice woman. February 24th. Mr. Hallowell, Sutcliffe, came over. He is amusing and nice. Very puzzled at Gilbert's conduct, which on this particular occasion was peculiarly eccentric. March 9th. I had an amusing lunch at the Hotel Cecil with Miss Bisland, representative of McClure. Evidently thinks a lot of Gilbert and wants his work for McClure. Oh, ye gods and little fishes, the diplomatic service ought to be all conducted by women. I offered her Margaret's poems in exchange for a short interview with Meredith, which she wishes Gilbert to undertake. March 14th, Gilbert dined at the Buxton's, met Asquith. March 19th, Leany is in town, and we have been with her to call on the Duchess of Sutherland. When I got used to the splendor, it was jolly enough. Her grace is a pretty sweet woman, who was very nervous, but got better under the fire of Gilbert's chaff. She made him write in her album, which he did, a most ridiculous poem of which he should be ashamed. It must be truly awful to live in the sort of way the Duchess does and endeavor to keep sane. May 25th. Words fail me when I try to recall the sensation aroused by a JDC dinner. It seems so odd to think that these men, as boys, to realize what their school life was and what a powerful element the JDC was in the lives of all. And there were husbands and wives, and the tie is so strong, and long, long thoughts of schoolboys and schoolgirls fell on us, as if the battle were still to come instead of raging round us. May 24th, we went together to see George Meredith. I suppose many people have seen him in his little Surrey cottage, Flint Cottage, Box Hill. He has a wonderful face and a frail old body. He talks without stopping except to drink ginger beer. He told us many stories, mostly about society scandals of some time back. I remember he asked Gilbert, Do you like babies? And when Gilbert said yes, he said, So do I, especially in the comet stage. June 5th, Granville Barker came to see Gilbert, touching the possibility of a play. June 29th, a garden party at the bishop's house, Kennington. The bishop told me that A.J. Balfour was very impressed with heretics. Guild of St. Matthew's service and rowdy supper. Gilbert made an excellent speech. July 5th, Gilbert dined at the Asquiths, met Roseberry. I think he hated it. July 16th, Gilbert went to see Mrs. Grenfell at Taplow. He met Balfour, Austin Chamberlain, and George Wyndham. 
had an amusing time, no doubt. Says Balfour is most interesting to talk to, but appears bored. George Wyndham is delightful. End of chapter 11, part 1.